This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Black power has moved to the center of American education's political agenda in a way not seen since the 1970s. The critical race theory debate is raging through American schools and legislatures. The Supreme Court will soon decide whether universities can use race criteria when admitting students. The New York Times is asking schools to adopt a text that places America's founding moment not in Philadelphia in 1776, but with the arrival of slaves in Virginia in 1619. Well, all this is new, but it's old. American intellectual and political history has not been a steady march forward from 19th century racist thought to Justice John Marshall Harlan's The Constitution is Colorblind Dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson, and on to Ralph Bunch's and Martin Luther King's celebration of the American ideal of political and social equality across racial lines. No, that's, it's not just a steady march from Black racism to universalism, as so many people would like to think. Within the African-American community, calls for Black power go back to the days of Marcus Garvey, Elijah Muhammad, Malcolm X, and the Black Panthers. The high watermark coincided with the assassination of Martin Luther King. At that time, there was a demand for Black leadership and community control in New York City. And at that time, Marcus Aurelius Foster was appointed as the first Black superintendent of major American city in Oakland, California in 1970. Three years later, Foster, like Martin Luther King, was cut down by bullets. The story of Marcus Aurelius Foster could hardly be more relevant to American education today, and I'm pleased to have with me on the Education Exchange his biographer, John Spencer, an education historian at Ursinus College just outside of Philadelphia. Uh, the book is entitled In the Crossfire, Marcus Foster and the Troubled History of American School Reform, and Right now it's celebrating its 10th anniversary. So this is a moment when it has really become uh, relevant and essential for educators who are renewing their passion for American and especially African-American history. So John, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. Pleased to be with you. Well, we'll come to Marcus Foster in just a moment, but just to you know, ask you to comment on sort of my opening observations here. Is there a connection between those events 50 years ago that you were studying in Philadelphia and the debates that are occurring today, the debates over American history and, and Black power? Yeah, um, well, absolutely. I, I think there's a connection. Um, you know, the, it, to put it in a very simple way, the connection is the, the history of race and racism in America, which as you suggested there's, you know, the events of that era um, is not when debate and conflict over this began uh, and not, not when uh, calls for uh, black activism and black power began. Um, these are, these are longstanding struggles in America over, um, over, over race and our, our history of, um, of slavery and racism and inequality. Um, the 60s was a period when those issues came to the fore uh, through the civil rights movement, the black power movement, um, lots of activism. Um, and Foster's story is in that period. He became uh, an educator in the 1950s and, and 
um, a somewhat um, uh, celebrated one in the city of Philadelphia in the late 60s and then in Oakland, California in the early 70s. And um, I was drawn to him because he was an interesting figure in those turbulent times. Uh, the, the title of the book, In the Crossfire, is partly a, a, a literal title because he was tragically assassinated uh, in a crossfire of bullets, which you know we can talk more about in a moment. But I also uh, had in mind a kind of um, you know metaphorical uh, notion of an ideological crossfire at, in, in that era. Uh, what I felt was um, a, a school reform debate that um, uh, had become incredibly polarized and. Um, uh, you know, represented a kind of um, oversimplified blame game, uh, <clears throat> on, you know, on one side, uh, uh, blaming of students and families for the, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, outcomes, uh, unequal outcomes in uh, urban schools. And on the other side, blaming the schools themselves uh, for being racist institutions. And uh, Foster was operating as an educator in the in the milieu of urban schools, and uh, I was very drawn to the way he was difficult to pigeonhole in these kinds of debates. And he he was very eclectic. He managed to um, communicate well with with different sides and to and to do constructive things through that process. So, in a way, I think all of that is very. Um, much uh, echoed today and resonant today um, in the polarization that we have, um, uh, and and um, you know in the challenges of operating constructively within it. Yes, uh, I think of him as a bridge. After reading your book, I think of him as a bridge. He's 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 got the this white power system in Philadelphia that's been entrenched for a long time and. Uh, uh, it's got a particularly aggressive figure in the mayor, uh, Rizzo, I think is his name. Uh, Frank Rizzo, yeah. Frank Rizzo, and he, he's, um, so this is on one side, and on the other side, you've got a, an increasingly militant young black community that's now, you know, they've been growing in numbers as a percentage of the population for a considerable period of time, but it's become extremely difficult for black people to move into positions of leadership within the school system. White principles are everywhere. And this was true in, in New York City and in other places around the country. There was nothing special about Philadelphia in this regard, but uh, so, so somebody's going to have to break through and that somebody's got to be somewhere on both sides of this divide. And so that's a heck of a challenge to, to pull off. And uh, so I think your, your book really does show that he's, he's a heroic figure that's trying to find, to, to build a bridge where the chasm is wide. Uh, yeah, no, abs absolutely. And um, uh you know, it's it. I, th I think that uh, you know, I'm I'm an historian, and and you know, one thing that we often emphasize, uh, among other things, is perspective. And um, it's it's obviously been a moment currently where um, many Americans are very uh, concerned and and upset about the level of acrimony and polarization and conflict in the society. And yeah, I certainly am as well. Uh, 
but it's as you said in your intro it's you know some some of these things are not new uh, the, you know the period that foster was operating in was a tremendously volatile moment uh and arguably much more so than than right now uh and and, and so um you know that it's it, it is interesting to look at what what can be learned from from such a moment and uh, indeed his his challenges were were significant because you had some some very uh, uh, you know uh, emotional and, and volatile conflicts uh, happening in the cities at that time in particular. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I was living on the south side of Chicago <laughs> in that period, and I can tell you, uh, I experienced the uh, uh, the concerns that that people on all sides had at that time. But let's talk about. Uh, Marcus Foster. Let's. That's. I love to go back to origins. Where does he come from? You know. You know. We have the origins of Ben Franklin and Abraham Lincoln, and we love to tell those stories. So, who is he? Why is he in Philadelphia? How did he get there? Where does he come from? Yeah, great question. Well, I, I'll preface my remarks by saying how I discovered him, which is that I was writing a PhD dissertation in history and, and thought I was doing uh, a study of Oakland, California in the post-World War II era with a focus on its schools and how they became battlegrounds over race and inequality. And I discovered Foster as the superintendent there from 1970 to 73. And almost as a footnote, it said that he had been assassinated by the Symbionese Liberation Army or the SLA, which I had remembered as a, as a nine-year-old uh, kidnapping Patty Hearst and the whole drama surrounding that. And I, I just thought, what in the world? <laughs> How does the, the African-American superintendent of schools in Oakland come into that story? And so that was where I got curious about that question of where he came from. And uh, what happened was as I did some research about him and did some oral history interviews with people who knew him and worked with him, they were so taken by the impact that he had had on them and on, on kids and on schools that I decided, well, I should make this a, a, a dissertation and eventually a book about him uh, rather than about one city. And it became about two cities, Philadelphia and Oakland. And that, that took me to his origins, mostly in Philadelphia, although technically he did come from the South. He came from Georgia. And uh, his family migrated to Philadelphia when he was just about three years old. And, um, and this was part of a larger trend of the migration of African-Americans out of the South and into the cities in the North and the West um, uh, in, the, in the World War I and World War II eras. His mother seems to be very, very important to him. Uh, and he, his father disappears uh, from your story pretty much early yeah. on. So. Here he is, the child of a single parent. Uh, although I don't think they ever get divorced, do they? His 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 parents. It's uh, you know that's you said it's the ten year anniversary of the book. That's one detail I'm a little sketchy in remembering. His father. It was a little murky even in the sources what happened to him. I think you're right that uh, that I say in the book that uh, he kind of just. Um, you know, no longer was part of the family at some point, and it's a little hard to pinpoint why. But, but he he Foster was raised by his his mother, um, who was uh, by all accounts a, a very 
determined individual, raised five kids of which uh, Marcus was the youngest. And, um, you know, think about that middle name that <laughs> you announced, Aurelius. That's quite a legacy to, to, to put on your kid, Marcus Aurelius. Um, and, and actually, I discovered this um, in the research. Before that, before I wrote the book, I always encountered his name as Marcus Albert Foster. And uh, but his, his sort of closest colleague, Bob Blackburn, who I interviewed extensively, uh, told me that when he left the country for the first time, when, when Marcus left the country to go to London on a trip, he had to get his passport. And that's when Bob learned that his middle name was really Aurelius. So this shows you a little bit about his mother and the kind of standards she had and the kind of determination she had to raise kids who were going to be successful and who were going to work hard and, and you know, um, and sort of thrive in the system. And well, her father, her father was a, a was he an historian or he was a classicist or, I mean, there's a certain education tradition there within the family that goes back even further than just his mother, right? Right, exactly. They, so he had a grandfather who was a bishop in the um, uh, African Methodist Episcopal Church, AME Church. And so there definitely was a family legacy uh, in education. And um I interviewed his brother when I was doing the research, and uh, his his brother was really my best source on what the family was like and what the what his mother was like. And you know, he said that she used to um, you know emphasize that they had to be twice as as good as everyone else, and and just that very very intense kind of um, family. And yeah, I'm at I'm at the Hoover Institution today, and uh, Condi Rice is uh, Condoleezza Rice is the director of the. Hoover Institution after having served uh, as the Secretary of State. And she always, she says again and again, you know, we, we, when I grew up in Alabama, my father always said, we just have to be twice as good as anybody else. And that's the only way we're gonna make it. And so when, when I saw that line in your book, I, I was reminded of that, you know, this, this was, if you identify the, the real stars in the, African-American community today, they were almost always raised in that kind of a context where they felt they had to be twice as good as anybody else. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and they did, if not more so, you know, and that's part of, part of that story of, uh, you know, the history of discrimination and, and, um, and, and racism. So, you know, he was not just a mommy's boy though. Your, your book brings out the other side of him. He was a little bit of a, I wouldn't say he, he lived on the streets, but it wasn't like he didn't know what street life in Philadelphia was like. Uh, so do you want to just elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, that was a big, interesting revelation to me um, during the research. My source for, for that is his childhood uh, friend, a, a man named Leon Frisbee, whom I interviewed a number of times. And, um, you know, before that I had, I should say Foster, Foster was well known in, in the cities he lived and worked in, um, but he wasn't a, a household name, a public figure of the sort that, uh, you know, any, any American would know. So um, there wasn't a, a ton of um, information about him there. Uh, and, and, most that there was um, focused on his work and his career and in very um, 
kind of laudatory terms and and uh, describe what a uh, as you said earlier a heroic figure a, a um, you know figure of great accomplishment. But Frisbee kind of humanized him to me. Uh, you know he was he was not you know somebody who uh, I, well as Frisbee put it you know we, we were in a in a in a gang he said and that that sort of um, caught my attention. It, Really, probably the more appropriate term for that period historically is a social club. Um, gang took on different connotations later, but you know they they got into conflicts with rival groups, and um, he kind of he he he, as Frisbee said, knew his way around the streets. Uh, and you know, I I I kind of thought about this a lot, and in the book, I sort of suggest that, um, you know, one of the things that was remarkable about him is he was able to communicate with all sides, as I said earlier, uh, academics and scholars on the one hand, and the, the, the students in his schools who had, um, you know, faced lots of challenges in their lives and often came from very tough urban neighborhoods. And I think he could really relate to them too, partly because of his own experience growing up in South Philadelphia. So there's a lot to be said there about his college years. He went, went to Cheney. Is it Cheney State Teachers College? Yeah, at the time it was uh, Cheney State Teachers College. Now it's Cheney University. So why there instead of to, you know, the University of Pennsylvania or one of the elite institutions? He clearly had the capabilities to do that it, from the way we look at the world today. He probably would have had that as his experience, but... Um, so what, what, how, how, why, why to Cheney University? Well, uh, that's a hidden, that is an historically, uh, black at the time college now university. And, um, you know, that was the, the, the limitations that were placed on, on people like Foster, uh, through both economics and racism, uh, you know, Cheney was a place that he was able to afford to go in the end. Uh, uh, because of uh, a scholarship, I believe. And, um, you know, he was certainly bright enough and capable enough to, to go anywhere, as his later work showed. But um, those places weren't, weren't uh, readily accessible to, to people like Marcus Foster. And, you know, that's, that's a story that continues to this day um, in, in different ways. Uh, there's lots of uh, debate and discussion about access to higher education, uh, among other debates about education and, and race. Um, so that's what was really available to him at the time. You know, there's another side of that, and that is he seems to have gotten a pretty decent education nonetheless. And so the idea that the segregated school was necessarily a place which did not give you an opportunity to uh, to learn and to succeed. Uh, sometimes we think of it that way, but um, it's more complex than that, wouldn't you say? Yeah, there's there's been some notable scholarship in recent years about this. I, I, I would emphasize that it, it's important not to romanticize this history and and suggest that um, you know, the, the movement for desegregation and the challenge to segregation was, was somehow ill-founded and that black students were, you know, always better off in, in segregated schools. But there is a, a literature now on the, the, the benefits that they had in, in spite of the, 
the, the differences and the inequalities in resources that they did often find very supportive faculty uh, and um, you know high expectations of them to to excel and so that was certainly the case for Foster at at Cheney um, the headmaster was a man named Leslie Pinckney Hill who um, was uh, a colleague of both Booker T Washington and W E B Du Bois and. Um, Hill was, was a man with very um, rigorous standards and, and he had a lot of impact on Foster and, and his friend Leon Frisbee, whom I mentioned earlier. And so um, they certainly, um, you know, received supportive, encouraging teaching and, and mentorship there. And it, 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 it certainly launched him on his career. Uh, you know, John, I think the moment when uh, Foster had his greatest accomplishments was at uh, Gratz High School, where he becomes the first black principal. And I know he becomes superintendent later on in Oakland, but I think here at Gratz, he really has an impact. So, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, so I, I actually agree uh, in an important way. Um, he, you know, Foster was most well-known in the early 70s as the superintendent uh, in, in Oakland, California, as we discussed. And that was certainly his, his kind of the, the peak of his achievement in the field. But he was principal of Gratz High School in the late 60s in Philadelphia. And I would, I would agree that in some ways, this is the pivotal moment for him in his career because there he's on the ground in a school as, a, as the leader of a school. And um, it was a school that had a lot of difficulties uh, before his arrival there. It had a white principal who um, in my research, I found um, to be kind of emblematic of a style of leadership in that, in that era, the, the 50s into the 60s, uh, of really sort of, you know, shrugging your shoulders and saying, well, what can you expect of these kids? Uh, you know, look at, look at where they come from, look at their neighborhoods, look at, um, you know, all of these things that make it impossible for us to really succeed with them. And, you know, this is where I suggest in the book, there's a, a kind of, you know, Foster exemplifies this pivotal shift toward a kind of leadership uh, that that was echoed that has been echoed in more recent years about raising expectations of all students in in education. So Foster went into Gratz after a, a community uproar over this uh, principal who was presiding over a school with very low achievement, and Foster went in and um, you know did all kinds of things to try to raise the expectations of the school and to su suggest that the kids here can learn. We need to work hard, serve them, and um, uh, you know, and and use all the resources at our disposal, including uh, collaborations with with parents and and you know, being as creative as we can in in all kinds of ways to to kind of change the whole ethos of the school. And um, you know, he he accomplished some very notable things there and came to the public eye in, in Philadelphia and. I would say that part, part of the reason he was such a successful superintendent for a few years in Oakland, and part of the reason I was drawn to him as a figure is that, as I said earlier, I think that the, the times were you know, prone to polarization and in the process, oversimplification about the nature of the problems of urban schools. And I, I would say that's, that's the case now as well. And I think being a school principal and having come up through, through, uh, through schools, 
gave Foster that uh, appreciation for the complexity of, of kids, of, of school life, of what's hard about it, um, as well as you know what, what can be accomplished. So I, I think that's a very important moment for sure. It's also a moment where um, I think he found his assumptions challenged in the sense that, um, you know, he always had been someone who had been um, kind of eager to emphasize those values we were discussing that he grew up with of, you know, being twice as good and hard work and striving. And I think when he was at Gratz in that period of the late 60s, he, he came up against some uh, aspects of institutional racism in America that that challenged those assumptions. And, and he, he took some pretty bold actions during those years that, that, that really um, you know, gave him a different kind of voice in the debate. Um, so a, a very pivotal time for sure. Yeah, no, he wasn't willing to just lie down and do what the school board uh, wanted to do. He, uh, he led a community that, uh, that forced some change from the bottom up. Uh, but now let's be, you know, uh, let's move on to Oakland. Um, here he is in Philadelphia making a success out of uh, his leadership in education. You, you, he's a hometown boy. He's, he's just, you, you just think he's going to be there the rest of his life. Uh, and all of a sudden uh, he gets a call from, from Oakland and all of a sudden he accepts it. And there's two sides to that. And the, let's start with the first side. How did this right-wing leadership group in Oakland, which had dominated the city for generations, decide to hire the first black superintendent in the United States of any big city? Well, I think uh, one simple answer is pressure. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, it, it, it was a notably uh, white a power structure in Oakland. The city had been almost entirely white in its population as, as recently as about 1940. And that's why I got interested in the history of Oakland after World War II is that, you know, by the time I, I lived in the Bay Area for a while um, before going to graduate school and, you know, knew Oakland as a, what's a so-called rainbow city, very diverse, um, very high percentage of African-American residents. And that was really a product of, of the, the post-World War II uh, migration um, out of the South that, that I mentioned before. And so Oakland became incredibly diverse, but its school board and its political establishment did not. And that became a real problem by the late 60s, as you had, um, again, as we're kind of seeing now, uh, this kind of rising to the surface, a level of frustration with that kind of exclusion um, of, of African-Americans, especially from decision-making power, their, their kids were um, larger and larger percentage of the student body in the schools, and yet there was very little representation on the school board. So there was a lot of activism and pressure to change that. And I think that the, you know, eventually the, the white leaders of the city and of the school board realized that the time is now, we need to, we need to gain greater, I mean, the system was in crisis. It had really lost legitimacy and, uh, the, you know, the conflict was so great. And I think they realized they needed to hire somebody who um, could bridge that divide and who had some credibility. Uh, you know, it was the time to hire an African-American, just like what happened at Gratz. It was really time to hire a principal at Gratz who was African-American, who could 
represent that community better? Well, you know, I've lived on both coasts and I've lived in the middle of the country and I feel like the United States is a very big country. And there's, it's, that's, it, as you have too. And, and I don't know, moving from Philadelphia to Oakland's a big, <clears throat> a big move. Um, why did he do it? Yeah, you're right. It's, they're very different. Um, and, um, you know, to, to put it very succinctly in one sense, uh, Oakland is, is a lot smaller. Uh, and um, he felt, I think, that the, the educational problems there were actually more manageable. Uh, you know, as much as the city was torn by conflict and, uh, you know, over school politics, um, it, it was not as overwhelming a situation as the city of Philadelphia, which was a very large East Coast city by comparison. Um, and the, you know, the level of social turmoil in Philadelphia was even, even greater, arguably. And so, you know, one, one thing that I think motivated him that, that he discussed and that Bob Blackburn talked to me about was this sense that you know, we've got these ideas about what needs to be done, um, things that he had done at Gratz. Um, Oakland seems like a place, you know, maybe we could do this on a system-wide level. Maybe we could change a whole school district rather than just a school. And that seemed more doable in Oakland than it did at the time in Philadelphia. And I think that was one, um, one factor. Uh, it was obviously a professional promotion. It was a chance to become a superintendent. And, you know, he... There was some talk about interest in him becoming superintendent in Philadelphia, but um, but uh, you know the offer came from Oakland and and he took it. Well, so as I look at his three years there, uh, he has some, uh, you know, I, in your account, he has some some successes with the state legislature. He gets some money even from Ronald Reagan, the governor. Uh, it's not like he is, you know. He's able to unify the communities, able to, uh, at a time when, you know, there were, they were at loggerheads between the black community and the white leadership, just like when he was principal, he's able to do some bridging there. But I don't see him having the same educational impact in Oakland that he had when he was principal. So there's two sides to my question there, my comments, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, really what it is, is it's the, it's the challenge of what often is called scaling up or, or you know, uh, promoting reform on a, on a system-wide scale rather than just at a particular school. And, um, you know, there are stories of um, exemplary schools that have energetic and, and um, effective leadership in the principal's office. Foster had certainly been a great example of that in his schools in the 60s. Um, it's, it's another level of challenge to take a, a whole school district. I mean, in, when you were talking about cities like, like Philadelphia and Oakland, even though Oakland was a lot smaller than Philadelphia, it's a good sized school district with at that time about 90 schools in it. And that's a, that's a big system to make an impact on. Um, I would say you're right in a sense he, the, you know, the, the impact was felt more directly in Gratz High School by the people whom he was serving there than it 
was perhaps at some of the or, or many of the schools in Oakland where his presence was not a daily presence of that sort. But I would suggest that his leadership in Oakland did have a, a really powerful effect while he was there in, in more intangible ways. There's a, you know, there's a quotation in my book at the end of the final chapter about Oakland from his close colleague, Bob Blackburn, that, that is, you know, really sort of frames it in terms of the kind of hope that he gave people. You know, there was such a sense of um, hopelessness about urban education, about the depth of the problems. And um, Foster spearheaded this process of civic engagement where he got all kinds of people involved from all walks of life in, in the schools, um, business leaders and parents and students and um, other people in the community. And he got a lot of them involved and, and it was a, just a kind of a constructive, hopeful feeling that, hey, we can really improve the schools in our city. And, you know, Blackburn kind of said the, the assassination was so tragic in that sense is that there was this great momentum and this feeling of momentum and it kind of, it got stifled there by, by you know, the leader was, was, um, was killed. Um, and it raises an interesting question about leadership, um, you know, it, Foster wrestled with this, and I get this question a lot about the book: is it, well, how do you, you know, can you can you train people to be effective like this as a leader? And it's a difficult question because, to some well, extent, it's, a larger it, question: can big city school systems ever become effective, or do we need to move to a different model? Which you know, community control was the model that was articulated in New York City. Today, I see the charter school, the decentralization, uh, giving parents choice as a new form of citizen participation, a different definition of it. And uh, isn't, isn't that the message that, you're, that, that your book leads to? Is that really that big city system really can't move forward? It's, it, is, it is hopeless. Well, I don't, I don't know if I would say that's, uh, in fact, I would say that's, that's, I didn't intend that to be a, a message of the book. Um, certainly people could debate whether that's the case. Um, I would say that a, a big theme of my book is that, um, you, you know, is this tension between what schools and school systems can and can't accomplish. I, as I said, I'm an historian, and one of the big themes in the history of the history of education is America's um, uh, tendency to put everything on the schools, to expect schools to, you know, solve all our problems. And you know, it goes back to Horace Mann, one of the you know the founders of public education in the 19th century, calling schools the great equalizer. And there's a lot of imagery about public education being the ticket to people's success and being the engine of social mobility. And, um, you know, one of the, the lessons in my book is that, and much scholarship in history of education is that that's, that's expecting too much of schools because they're embedded in the larger society. So if urban school systems are having problems, it's partly because cities have problems and schools aren't separate from that. There's, there's economic problems that people have in cities. And so that leads to educational disadvantages that they have. And the schools can't just, um, you know, kind of level the playing field, you know, easily by, by waving a wand, whether it's a, a particular school and a principal or whether it's a system and a superintendent. They're, they're operating within that context where there are constraints on what they probably can truly 
achieve, whether it's a big system or smaller schools or, or, or what. So I, I, in that sense, I think the problem's even deeper than people realize. Um, but I, I would agree that, you know, at their best, charter schools and, and um, you know, other kinds of innovations of that sort can, can um, empower, you know, leadership like Foster, you know, people like that to be creative and to be energetic and creating something that, that works and that energizes people. Yeah, that's the, so Howard Fuller sort of came to that conclusion after becoming superintendent in, uh, and he was in the Black Power Movement. Uh, right. And he, he becomes uh, superintendent in Milwaukee and uh, thinks he can change it and he can't. And he, he you know, he's already toying with this idea of uh, vouchers and, and choice and, and becomes very supportive of the charter school movement. So he's in many ways, you know, just behind Marcus Foster, but he he moves in a slightly different direction. And as you say, it's an open debate as to whether or not uh, this is the the way out of what I agree is a really uh, difficult challenge. Um, but you know, he's shot uh, by the whatever this outfit is, the SLA, the Symbionese, this this. Liberation Army, this radical left-wing organization trying to make a name for itself, later does by kidnapping Patty Hearst. Um, isn't that also a metaphor that one of the challenges of the African-American community is the danger of being hijacked by the left for its own purposes? Well, um... I'm, I'm not sure I'd put it quite that way. I, I, I do agree that the SLA was a very toxic uh, kind of force. Um, and, you know, it proved deadly for Foster. And, um, you know, it was, it was certainly nothing to emulate as a, as a, as a political organization. Um, I, I do think it was... I, you know, even in that time, it was unrepresentative of, uh, so, you know, I would, I would, it, it, they, they spouted, you know, leftist ideas, they considered themselves Maoists. Um, I, I, I would hesitate to, you know, sort of say that they were typical of what we might call the left at that time. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think, I think it's possible to exaggerate that a bit, but certainly, you know, that was Foster. Foster was, um, you know, as we said earlier, was worked hard to kind of chart a course in between extremes um, and to kind of involve all kinds of people in the process, and that usually involved, um, you know, people of different different beliefs and views, and so. He couldn't afford as a leader to side, you know, with with people on one extreme or the other. And um, the SLA was certainly quite extreme. <laughs> I mean, a really nutty kind of version <laughs> of that. Uh, sensational uh, in that sense. 
Well, I'm glad you discovered that uh, Foster's name is Marcus Aurelius Foster. <laughs> I, you know, he that does sort of tell you something about his lineage and about the aspirations of where he comes from, and which probably somehow are internalized within within him, and he does become this this significant figure, which you know we haven't really paid sufficient attention to, and we're all grateful to you, John for um, for your book in the crossfire for really uh, highlighting all of what uh, he tells us what he has to say to us uh, so thank you very much for joining me on the education exchange thank you it's been my pleasure I've been speaking with John Spencer professor at Ursinus College and author of the book in the crossfire Marcus Foster and the troubled history of American school reform I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me every Monday at noon when our weekly podcast is released on the Education Next website.